What would it take to arouse your life, to experience more connection, more pleasure, more realness, in and outside of the bedroom? I'm August McLaughlin, and this is Girl Boner Radio. Relationships are hard. You know, this idea of happily ever after keeps us rooted in this very unhealthy belief that we're going to find this romantic partner that's going to complete us, i.e. we're not complete without them. And that there's never going to be fights. There's always going to be chemistry, that they are just these need meeting machines that are going to make me feel reparented, which is what so many of us actually go into relationships desiring somebody to reparent us. I think it's a good time, especially with the new generation who mm. grew up swiping, to remind them how, how hard relationships are and what it takes to, to build the legs. Yeah. Vanessa Bennett and John Kim are therapists and co-authors of the new book, It's Not Me, It's You. Break the Blame Cycle, Relationship Better. They are also a couple who met online when neither was anticipating life-changing love, at least not anytime soon. When I first met John, I had actually just come out of a pretty intense, short but intense relationship with somebody that had left me, honestly, struggling for the first time ever in my life with severe depression. I was really kind of trepidatious about getting out into dating. A friend of Vanessa's had been sending her John's posts from Instagram, where he is well known as the angry therapist. I liked it, but nothing had ever really, I don't know, grabbed my attention that deeply. One day he actually posted something and I just remember it kind of triggered in me like, "Uh uh-huh. And so I went to his page and I did a little light Instagram stalking. And something shifted. So she sent the post she had seen to her friend in a DM. I was like, I find this guy to be incredibly attractive. He seems to live in LA. He seems to be single. And we have a mutual friend. I'm going to date this guy. And she was like, okay. You know, at the time he had, I don't know, like 50,000 or 70,000 followers. And I was like, no, I'm going to date this guy. It was just one of those things where, in hindsight, it's almost like something took possession of my body, right? Like, this is somebody I'm going to date. Now, it wasn't like, oh, this is the one or this is my forever, but it was like I just had this deep sense of this person will be in my life. Vanessa semi-jokingly says that she manifested John. It could be that. It could be I'm a New Yorker and, like, I make things happen when I say they're going to happen. In any case, she had a knowing, so she decided to ask their mutual friend to play Cupid. She met that friend for lunch. And so we were catching up and talking, and before I actually ever said anything about John, he kind of looked at me and said, I have this friend that I feel like you'd really get along with. And I was like, oh? You guessed it. The friend he had in mind for Vanessa was John. John now calls that friend blind date guy. So, John, what do you recall about meeting Vanessa? 
You know, we have this joke where if I'm the shot glass, Vanessa is a wine glass. So my response is going to be about three and a half sentences. <laughs> That's great. Blind date, guy runs up to me at the gym, says, hey, do you date white girls? I said, come on, man. I, I date all, all types of girls. And he says, I have a therapist for you. And I said, look, I don't just date therapists. <laughs> and he gave me your Instagram. And I went through the whole thing, uh, stalked the shit out of her Instagram. Uh, which, I like how you're so much more open about admitting. I say light stalking and you're like, oh, no, I stalked the shit well, out of her. Well, because I'm honest. <laughs> open honesty is what struck me most about it's not me, it's you. Neither author seems to hold back when talking about the very real ups and downs in their own relationship, including about things that made the beginning pretty complicated. Unlike Vanessa, I was at a time in my life where I was trying to be quote-unquote single on purpose. In their book, John describes single on purpose as a practice he had come up with for, quote, growing and investing in self while free and alone. Because I've been in relationships most of my life, I wanted to get into debauchery. I wanted to do things that I didn't do in my 20s. I wake up with someone I didn't like, you know, one night stands, all these stories that you hear about. I wanted to do that before I got into something serious. And I knew that the next one was going to be life-changing. I knew the next one was going to be something that I build that was going to be sustainable, possibly, you know, house, kids, the picket fence and all that. John had already been in a pattern of relationships getting super serious too soon. He would meet someone, feel a connection, and the next thing he knew, they were splitting rent. He'd even been in a relationship that ended in marriage, he wrote, and then really ended in divorce. So single on purpose. That was his goal. But then enter Vanessa. As I started that and I didn't get far, the universe cock-blocked me, basically. Oh, shit. And so, uh, speaking of boners, <laughs> and, and that's why I was ambivalent in the beginning. But his Insta-stalking still made him curious enough to ask her out. So he did. He called her and they made plans. We actually went out for a proper dinner, which almost sounds silly, but I feel like nowadays that's like so not a thing. People are very much like, let's get drinks or let's get coffee. And John was a gentleman and he like made dinner reservations at a nice restaurant and we actually had dinner and, and it was long and lovely and talked. Even when I say it out loud, it kind of sounds silly, but I was like starved for that. It felt really nice. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I don't know how old you are, August, but you know, I'm 49, so I grew up in the 80s, I grew up where you had to walk up to someone and, and muster the courage to ask them out, right, before the swipe culture. And so making dinner reservations, I didn't feel like I was a gentleman. That's just what you do. Vanessa's younger than me. That's so, true. It's an age difference. Yeah. Thing, so I wonder with her being an elderly millennial, because <laughs> it's usually coffee. Drinks. It's coffee, ghosting, and dick pics. So mm -hmm. uh, I don't know. So yeah, of course I made reservations. And uh, yeah, we had a nice dinner at a place called Little Dom's, or, uh, one of my favorite places in Los Feliz. Ah, beautiful. I love that area. I used to live in Atwater. Oh, yeah. Love Atwater. Yeah, yeah. Did he really say elderly millennial? I had to laugh at that one a little bit. Anyway, back to the story. Their date at Little Dom's, a quaint Italian spot, went well, all considering. Uh, of course, I found her very attractive. We had a lot in common. We also had a lot of differences. 
and I judged it very fast. So I was kind of one foot in, one foot out. And that ambivalence caused Vanessa her anxiety and then caused her to basically draw the line in the sand. John wrote that he didn't know where to file that first date in his brain. He didn't want a relationship, yet everything about his connection with Vanessa, it felt different. But he denied it. And so even though they started dating, John was not all in, which is part of what made for a rocky start to their relationship. Rocky beginnings like that are not uncommon, but we don't often hear about them. You talk about not really having a real honeymoon phase. I think probably a lot of folks relate, but we really seldom hear about it. And so it can feel like something's just broken. Would you share a little bit more about the rockiness of the beginning? Yeah. I mean, I think you're pretty spot on. I feel like we always hear about the electric. I looked across the room and saw them and we locked eyes and then it was having sex into the sunset kind of starts of relationships. And so when we don't have that, we question if the relationship is viable. I think that's really unfair. I think John and I actually work with clients a lot on that. You know, it's this feeling of, well, if it's not the lightning in a bottle, then it must not, again, be viable. I had a pattern, I think, also of finding men who were very into me and it was very obvious. I really liked when men, it's almost like a love bombing thing. I found that attractive because it made me almost feel safe. And I did not get that with John. John was very ambivalent because of where he was coming from and his fear. I had never experienced that before where somebody was like one foot in, one foot out, one foot in. It took me, it was a very short few months of me saying after maybe three cycles of him in and out, you know, I had this realization that there was something being presented to me, an opportunity to, for the first time ever, choose myself and be very clear about how I was choosing myself. In the book, Vanessa wrote, maybe my knowing with John wasn't about him being my person. Maybe it was about the importance of him coming into my life so I could finally face myself and decide I was worth choosing. And so, after a romantic trip, they took to Costa Rica, full of good food, great sex, and emotional confusion, she took a firm stand. I kind of laid it on the table and I essentially told him, you know, I'm in this. If you're not, then essentially shit or get off the pot. I was pretty clear. I don't love ultimatums, but it didn't feel like it to me. It really just felt like I'm choosing me and I know my worth and I know I'm great. And you don't have to believe that. That's okay. But that I'm not going to be in this with you. It feels, it feels unsafe to me, which is something I had told him a couple times. And so um, that actually pushed him, I think, to make the decision. August, I just had a revelation. Ooh. Yeah. You know, if she's used to men coming in, kicking doors down and, and, you know, sweeping her off her feet, and that wasn't my style, and it wasn't just the ambivalence, it just kind of isn't my style, I wonder if that contributed to her feeling unsafe. So maybe because I was someone, you know, that wasn't outside her bedroom window with the, the boombox over my head and throwing pebbles and, and all that, maybe because I wasn't, uh, you know, chasing her, that felt unsafe to her, but was it unsafe or was it something she wasn't used to? Yeah. Oh, that's such a good point. 
Yeah, it can get really complicated, especially with what we learn about how love should feel. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why our collision wasn't uh, that whole lightning in the bottle is because I'm not used to like, you know, women chasing me, but I, I'm definitely used to, or at least the few relationships before Vanessa, I was used to more women being more quote unquote, what I say, lovey dovey or more aggressive or more like assertive, very like um, sexually and stuff kind of all over me. And, and and so with Vanessa, that wasn't the case because that's not her style. So we basically have two people who are yeah. in something they're not used to. And so yeah. basically it felt very, um, what is going on? Are we in? Are we out? You know? Yeah. Yeah. Almost like you both were feeling like something was off because there wasn't that love bombing effect yeah. over the top. Yes. That's yes. so interesting, which a lot of times isn't really healthy, right? Like love bombing right. is often a tactic. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Speaking of wonky behaviors, John and Vanessa have a chapter in their book called Lightning in a Bottle is Actually Dysfunction. It opens with a thought-provoking quote from The Mind Geek. Be mindful of people who feel like home when home wasn't a safe place to be. They go on to share more about their early relationship, what attraction actually is, and a concept known as repetition compulsion. Repetition compulsion actually is a Freudian term, and it essentially means the unconscious will continue to repeat the same pattern over and over again until either it's learned its lesson, it's rewritten history, it's as if the psyche might be trying to make sense of some trauma. And so the psyche will kind of touch that hot stove over and over again until it really embodies the lesson of, oh, this stove is hot. That's one reason someone who grew up in an unstable or abusive household might be drawn to harmful dynamics as an adult. This can play out in other ways, too. For example, Vanessa grew up feeling like it was her responsibility to take care of her little brother and give her exhausted mom some relief. That has played out in what she calls mothering in her relationships. In the book, she points out that that is quite a libido killer, feeling like you need to parent your partner. This idea of repetition compulsion has also played out in her codependent tendencies. So the people pleasing, the not rocking the bow, all the things that I came into the relationship with. And it wasn't really until she met John, she said, that she had the groundwork. To practice changing those patterns and changing those habits and interrupting that repetition, like being able to pull back and see it for what it was, that it was unhealthy patterning. I don't think I was able to do that before you. That's really interesting. I just read something today and it gave me a a huge light bulb moment how dopamine in our brain is shot through love, but it's not so much through love, it's through the chasing, right? Mm. So dopamine, they call the uh, the more drug, meaning you just want more of it. There's this thing that happens when you meet someone where it can be about the chase and the high of the chase. Mm-hmm. And so after that, you get less dopamine. Then of course, people can label that as boring. Rather than finding joy and comfort in things like higher oxytocin levels, the chemical that's linked with intimacy and closeness. So dopamine is the what if drug, meaning, oh, what if this person was just this way? Or what Mm. if there's someone better? Or what, you know, it's the fantasy, the oxytocin, serotonin, and uh, the endorphins. That's the what is drug, you know, that's the in the moment. And what's interesting is that when dopamine is firing, the other three drugs that put you in the here and now starts to lower. 
And research shows that if you grew up around high levels of stress, or if you have a particular type of brain or neurodivergence, you might end up with impaired dopamine function. And because of that, you might be especially likely to seek more and more. So then you're in this kind of spinning state of what if she only was like this? And it's very easy chemically to see the differences as, okay, then she's not the one. Do you think that your repetition then would be to chase the dopamine? Do you think that that's part of that compulsion? Yeah, I think the repetition for me would be to chase either spotlighting the things that I think are missing or could be better, of course, because of that, then wondering what's out there or if I'm not with the one, right? And and so in the book, the, the reason why seeing beauty in the contrast is so powerful, at least to me, is because that was a way for me to lower the dopamine and then raise my oxytocin, oxytocin, <laughs> oxytocin, kombucha, whatever. Um, and, and so that made me more present. And, you know, it's something I struggle with today, you know, but even, even today, I can look at Vanessa and really appreciate our differences, who she is, accept them, try to soothe myself, try not to force her to be like someone that, you know, or do something that I want or, mm -hmm. you know, trace, you know, the old love blueprints. The old love blueprints. I like that phrase. It seems important to think about if you find yourself stuck in a relationship pattern that isn't feeling healthy or fun. September is the Pleasure Chest birthday month. In celebration, they are offering free shipping all month long. As autumn comes along, you can fall in lust and enjoy some cozy nights with the help of a new toy or sexy accessory. Get more deeply connected with a partner by using a vibrator, stroker, cock ring, or anal plug with remote and app capability. Shop the collection at thepleasurechest.com and get that free, discreet shipping. Again, that's the Pleasure Chest at thepleasurechest.com. This episode is supported by Athletic Greens. I added AG1 to a smoothie today with almond milk and banana and peanut butter, and it was delicious. And I also love knowing that I got a range of vitamins, minerals, probiotics, and more sourced from Whole Foods. Plus, AG1 is designed to promote daytime alertness and sleep quality. Athletic Greens founder struggled with lots of gut health issues, and he created AG1 to help folks invite more wellness without having to take a ton of supplements. To make things easy, Athletic Greens is offering you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Just visit athleticgreens.com slash girlboner. I also love that for every purchase they donate to organizations that get nutritious food to kids in need. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash girlboner to quote, take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Speaking of finding beauty in the contrast, 
Vanessa and John also differ sexually as far as their desire styles go. Some of that seems to stem from things they learned about sex early on. So I grew up with a single mother who was single but was in a lot of relationships. So I met a lot of partners growing up. I think I got close to and attached to a handful of people growing up. And, you know, that that's sad for a kid because obviously then you have to kind of break those attachments. I think for me, there was also this lesson that was going on coming from my mom's kind of defenses around like, fuck men, we don't need them. You know, they're not worth anything. And yet she was highly sexual and she was beautiful and she was a bartender. And so she got a lot of physical and sexual attention. And so I think I learned really young that looks were really important. Being sexual and kind of using your sexuality was important, but that on an intimate or a vulnerable level, men could not be trusted and shouldn't be trusted. For example, when Vanessa was about 12, her mom made a comment that really stayed in her mind. I don't remember how we started talking about this, but I remember my mom saying to me at the time we were part of a Methodist church. I used to go to church when I was a kid. And I remember her saying to me, you know, Vanessa, (laughs) I really love sex. And I love sex outside of marriage. She said this to me. John's raising his eyebrows. And she said, I've had a lot of sex outside of marriage. And she said, but I do not believe that because I've had a lot of sex outside of marriage, I'm going to be sitting in hell for all eternity between Hitler and Stalin. It was like her way of saying, like, own your sexuality, but like through a very interesting kind of door. That really stuck with me because it really gave me a perspective and permission around morality and sex that I don't know that a lot of my friends probably got with a different kind of parent. A morality statement about sex and permission in a church, no less. Maybe that was the point. One of John's first memories about sexuality took place around the same age. And it involved the 90s sitcom Weird Science. In the episode, two high school nerds wear bras on their heads, and they use a computer program to create the quote-unquote perfect-looking woman. And I remember watching this as a, as a, I don't know how old I was, maybe 13, 14, in my mom's room, and then lying down and with every fiber of my being trying to manifest or create this beautiful woman that's going to walk in through the door and 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 uh and and and, uh, not only just walk in and kind of you know show me life but also fulfill my sexual needs oh man at 13 i can only imagine and so of course that was the uh shallow end of the pool and as you keep swimming um enter pornography at a very young age and uh you know the highs you got from that stuff and then locker rooms my Dad was an alcoholic. There's addiction in my blood. My dad was an alcoholic. My mom's dad was an alcoholic. My dad's dad was an alcoholic. And I feel like it skipped my brother, but I got the addictive gene. If you were to ask me what my addiction was and I had to pick one, uh, 100% would be sex. Um, so it wouldn't be food. It wouldn't be exercise. And of course, I do a lot of, a lot of you know, I eat a lot and I, <laughs> I work out a lot. But um, when I was married, I, I, I thought I was a sex addict. So I was going to SAA meetings and all this kind of stuff. And then I kind of came to the conclusion that I'm not a sex addict because I wasn't controlling my life and still not controlling my life, but I am highly sexual. And I put that almost at the top when it comes to relationships. And that's, you know, that's obviously one of the differences between Vanessa and I. Mm. Vanessa, what does that difference feel like growing up with this 
very unique representation, I think, of mm-hmm. sexuality. And then, and also as women, we're so often objectified, and I know mm-hmm. porn can feel complicated. Did anything come up around that for you? You know, what's funny is that I'm actually completely okay with porn, completely okay with like strip clubs, for example. I used to actually go with my ex to one in Brooklyn. We lived out there, we would go with friends. That kind of stuff doesn't bother me at all. And I and I don't find myself trying to measure up to women in porn. I could watch porn with a partner. That that stuff does not upset me. It doesn't upset me if he's like on Instagram liking models' pictures. I I tend to go very almost like non-jealous, almost maybe to a detriment. Like I've actually talked about this with my therapist. Like, why do I feel zero jealousy? <laughs> I actually prefer her to be more jealous. Well, I think a lot of people would. I would say it's less about the measuring up to myself within kind of that porn fantasy, the Barbie doll come to life and weird science. And it's more about John's constant desire for connecting physically. And also to say, I have a two and a half year old. So I think for anybody listening who has a young child, the understanding of like, I only have so much of my physical body to go around. (laughs) It really triggers in me a feeling of not being enough. John wants more from me than I feel like I'm capable of giving. And so I feel like I'm not enough to satisfy my partner, period. And so we've we've had actually a lot of go-arounds in that space and around that topic because his actions trigger me, my actions trigger him, and then we get in that cycle. Yeah. And by the way, our sex is amazing. I, I love our sex and connection. When we are intimate, I, um, I, mean, I have zero complaints, but it's not so much about how many times or the quantity, but it's more of the feeling of uh, being desired through touch, through flirtation, through, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I think part of it is because Vanessa is different. Everyone we, we, we are with is different, of course. Me comparing what it was like before, and I think many people do, is comparing your current relationship with old ones, you know, and I think it's a trap. I think it's dangerous because what happens is Everyone that you love is different and the chemistry produced by those two people are going to be different, right? That dance is going to be different. And so if you're comparing or trying to trace previous relationships and what was good in that, then what you're doing is you're taking a black light to your current relationship and it's going to be harder for you to see all the positive stuff in the current relationship. And then also you're tracing the highlight reel of the old relationship, forgetting about the documentary, forgetting about all the things that didn't work. Why you're not together, right? Right. Yeah, it's so different for me. On the surface, Vanessa said, these differences could be summarized in their love languages. As you may know, I have mixed feelings about the five love languages myself, partly because of something that Vanessa and John touch on in their book, how broad they are. But I also really respect whatever tools work for folks. And Vanessa said the love languages really help describe their different sexual desires. I'm an acts of service person. So I feel loved and appreciated and desired and I guess put up kind of on a pedestal when my partner is doing things for me that it feels as though they see me. So not necessarily just getting the car washed, but like actually taking things off of my plate that they have been observing will help me, right? Will help me feel held and partnered and seen. And so that for me is what actually then makes me want to connect intimately, right? And so it it's kind of a dance. Vanessa also tends to have more responsive desire, 
whereas John's desire is more on the spontaneous side. When she realized that and learned that her responsiveness is totally normal and common, she found it mind-blowing. Knowing that I am way more of a responsive desire person, that has been a really good reframe, I think, for John and I to understand. The ways they flirt with each other differs too. And those differences have brought up some uncomfortable feelings and chances for growth. John's need for feeling desired and intimacy that looks like flirting, and I feel like his flirting tends to be more sexual than my flirting, that has been a rub for us. And I think that that has been part of the conversations we continue to have because what it brings up in me is, well, the way that I flirt then isn't enough, or the way that I do connect with you sexually isn't enough. We're very honest about this stuff because we want people to understand that we continue to and do have our challenges. We just continue to talk about it. We just continue to allow it to be a conversation and an attempt to not attack each other or point fingers or you're wrong and I'm right, you know, or your way of being is weird and abnormal and mine is normal because what does that even mean? I think the most important thing is to understand that we just continue to show up and talk about it. John said there's another layer to all of this. Vanessa's at a point in her life, you know, approaching late 30s where she's- Ooh, late 30s. Ah, don't say that. <laughs> that she's, um, she's able to say no, and she's able to have non-negotiables and draw boundaries and not want to fake orgasms anymore. There's a lot of stuff happening with her and her personal space, growth, mm-hmm. her own relationship with self that is adding to- the layers, right? And so maybe I've been with women, we were both younger and they weren't there yet. So maybe I got more of what I wanted because they didn't have the ability to draw those lines. And maybe they were doing it for me more so than them. Yeah, totally. I told Vanessa and John about my recent conversation with Eleanor, a woman who has really stepped into her desires now in her 40s. And I have already received like eight emails from other women who relate. Vanessa, does that resonate? Yeah, it does. And what I will say is right now in this moment, when John and I do have sex, because I feel like I have gotten to a place or I'm working towards getting to a place where I speak up, communicate my needs, put myself first, sometimes I enjoy the sex more than I ever have. It is a bit of a revolution for me, you know? I mean, I think you could agree, August, like we're really raised as women in this culture to not put our own pleasure, sensuality, desire first at all, right? I mean, we're really raised to believe that our sexuality is in service of men and in service of their ego, which is why so many women fake orgasms because we don't talk about our needs. We're not even taught how to. I feel like I would be doing a little bit of the whole like, do as I say, not as I do, if I wasn't also attempting to change those habits and get out from underneath, you know, that kind of toxic patriarchal structure that that keeps sexuality, I think, minimized in women. And so bravo to that guest you had on. And and I'm looking forward to my 40s for that reason. While right now in this moment, it might feel like I'm saying no more to John. And on the receiving end, I'm sure there's a discomfort with that, even if he does understand where it's coming from. I feel like being able to be in this space and being with somebody who I feel safe enough to explore this with is only going to lead me to actually have more amazing sexual experiences on the other side of it.
A lot goes well for John and Vanessa as far as their relationship now. It's less rocky and still something they work at. You talk in the book about how you are a work in progress, that you're always working on your relationship. I'm curious if there was a point along the way where it went from this like bumpy beginning and all of these doubts to feeling quite valid. Have there been any turning points? John's thinking, <laughs> which, think, makes me, well, because, which makes me question it. Because if they, they, they come, uh, I'm still waiting. August, I'm, you know. I'm, uh, I'm tumbling in a dryer right now, waiting for someone to open the door. I just laid out to dry. Um, I think those come in moments for sure, right? I don't think it's like you wake up and there's a constant. For me, I feel it uh, in my body in moments, especially, you know, we're parents now. So we are raising a daughter, which is a new experience for me, watching her be a mother. Just they, 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 they come in moments in the mundane where you're like, oh, wow, you know, or you feel either safe or you feel attracted or you feel connected. But yeah, there are moments throughout the day. Yeah, I feel that. Being super transparent in their book about these moments and their challenges was very intentional, but not necessarily easy. Yeah, it was actually important to us, although very difficult, because uh, at least for me, the tone of the book is just as important as the content. We wanted to, because we're both therapists, disclose to the world that therapists also have problems and issues and shortcomings. I know when I was seeing a therapist myself, I would always wonder, especially when I was going through a, a divorce, I would always wonder, wonder what she's like in her relationships. But therapists don't disclose that stuff and they're more you know, trained to be a cardboard cutout. So I got the illusion that they're perfect and they're telling me how to get the perfect relationships. And then once I became a therapist, I realized there is no perfect. And so I think it's important, especially these days with you know, wellness being kind of crusty and, and, and the explosion of wellness to show therapists in a, in a human way. So that was part of this book is to, mm -hmm. the tone of it. It's been... An interesting experience because I think that John and I out the gate have always been very transparent and tried to what he's saying, you know, keep that curtain pulled back. But there have been moments, I mean, even before writing this book, right? Like we'll do, you know, Instagram lives or things like this online and people will, and I mean, listen, I'm sure it's the same thing with anybody. I'm not saying we're celebrities, but like celebrity couples, like people you think you know because you see them. And I think we all do this. We have an idea in our head of what they are and it might not be reality. And so there's been experiences where, you know, John will use his, he's got a very kind of dry sense of humor and we do like a little tit for tat sometimes. I'm also a New Yorker. So like he'll say something to me and I'll kind of bite back, but it's done in like a cheeky way. Neither of us take it personally. There's been experiences where that's been caught on say like an IG live or something and people like blow up his feed. Like, you're so rude. I can't believe you'd speak to her like that. Da, 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 da. I got a message one time from a woman saying, I see you. You're in a narcissistic relationship. I was there. Let me help you. I was like, whoa, <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. Oh my goodness. So it is interesting. Again, the, the perceptions and the projections that people put on you when you're, when you're in the spotlight in any way. It is pretty amazing how things can get perceived or judged, especially online. Social media isn't exactly the best place for nuance. But if anyone had doubts about John and Vanessa's relationship, their book will probably douse them. And beyond their personal story, it's full of insights that we can apply to our own relationships. 
What would you most like folks to know about or take away from your book? I'll let Vanessa go first so I could buy some time. (laughs) Relationships are hard. That sounds cliche. And obviously I'm not the first person that has said it, but I think so much of what we talk about is based in this idea that this cultural perception of the one or happily ever after is bullshit. It's something that's been fed to us and it actually keeps us from being able to achieve and experience true intimacy in relationships. This idea of happily ever after keeps us rooted in this very unhealthy belief that we're going to find this romantic partner that's going to complete us, i.e. we're not complete without them, and that there's never going to be fights, there's always going to be chemistry, that they are just these need-meeting machines that are going to make me feel reparented, which is what so many of us actually go into relationships desiring somebody to reparent us. And that we're not going to have to keep doing the hard work on ourselves individually, even once partnered, but also in our relationship with this person. And I think if I were to say there's like a theme of the book, it's to kind of remind us that that's the truth and that's okay and that's normal. And it's not without payoff to do that work. I have a tattoo on my right arm that says love hard. And I think a lot of people mistake that as love with everything until you have nothing or Mm. you love so hard that two people become one, which, you know, we see from movies and it sounds romantic. I used to believe that, but that's not the case. What I mean by love hard, the tattoo is I forgot the word is in between. It was supposed to say Mm -hmm. love is hard. No, what I mean by love hard is that you love By looking at yourself, Mm. you love and love becomes greater than its parts, right? I really believe this idea that the thing that you create with your partner, although difficult, can become greater than both of you. And I think that's when there's magic. I think that's when love becomes a superpower. I think most people don't reach that because of things that we struggle with, like whether it's differences or or tracing old blueprints or or not taking ownership, blaming, all that stuff. That prevents us, I think, from hitting the higher notes of love where you build something that can hold both of you because you build something that's stronger than than each of you. Throughout It's Not Me, It's You, Vanessa and John provide questions to ask ourselves. I asked them to each share one question for us all to ponder. Ooh, I've got so many, but I think one of them would be asking yourself what kind of partner, whether that be romantically, sexually, I would even say we could talk about this as a parent, as a friend, as a sister, daughter, whatever, you want to be. And allow that to be the kind of person that you evolve into. Let everybody else evolve how they're going to evolve. And remember, you're only responsible for yourself. And you're also only 50% of every relationship. So the best that we can do is attempt to be the best versions of ourselves, not beat ourselves up and we're not because that's also human. But then we have to let the rest of it lie. So many times we focus on other people and what they could be and should be doing differently as a way to hide from our own shortcomings and the work that we actually need to do internally on ourselves. And so if I were to give one question to ask, it's kind of like, what could you own? Where in your relationships and what in your relationships can you own and work on that and let the rest be their responsibility? John agrees. 
I think it's a good time, especially with the new generation who mm. grew up swiping, to remind them how how hard relationships are and what it takes to, to build the legs. Yeah. John said that his question for us sounds simple, but it's harder to execute. What new love experience do you want to give yourself? Because I think there's nothing more convincing than a new experience. And not just like what new kind of partner, of course, the macro, but I'm talking about the micro. What new experience do you want with this kiss, this touch, you know, this date night? And so when you're going into it with the intention of creating something new, I think that's how you let go of the past and create new patterns and you convince your body that what you're experiencing is new and different. I think this is how we rewire ourselves. To learn more, check out John Kim and Vanessa Bennett's book, It's Not Me, It's You, Break the Blame Cycle, Relationship Better. Most anywhere books are sold. And if you're enjoying the show, please take a moment to give it a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, that's the purple iPhone app, or in the iTunes store. Those ratings really help more folks find the show, and I so appreciate everyone. Thank you so much for listening.